Uh, good morning. Uh, my name is Chris Miller. If you don't know me, I'm a pastor here at Remedy Church and excited to see you guys' faces. Um, today we're going to be in 2 Corinthians 6, uh, verses 11 through chapter 7, verse 2. So if you want to open up your Bibles to that spot. And kind of while you're opening up, I wanted to give a, a shameless plug. Uh, if you're a man and you go to Remedy Church, um, PD does a men's Bible study Thursday mornings. Now, most of us might have to work during this time, so there's no shame here. From 7 to about 8 a.m., they just read through a book of the Bible, and then they get on It's a Zoom or Facebook, one of those two things, and uh, they talk about it. So if you want to be a part of that, make sure to contact PD, or you can come up and ask me about it. I can give you info and make sure that PD reaches out to you. If you work from 7 to 8 a.m. on Thursday, you can also start a Bible study and invite other men or women. You can start a Bible study and invite women. Uh, they just read verse by verse and talk about it. Um, so there's my plug. So go ahead and stand up with me as we read God's Word. We have spoken freely to you, Corinthians. Our heart is wide open. You are not restricted by us, but you are restricted in your own affections. In return, I speak as to children. Widen your hearts also. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. Make room in your hearts for us. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, uh, we bless you today and we ask that you do a mighty work among us, that you open our hearts wide to one another so that we can be a part of what you call us to do, that we can soak in your promises for holiness, and we can seek to obey your commands regarding holiness, and we can grow as a body into full maturity. Help us to have our hearts wide open to both your word, to what Paul says here, and to each other. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. Have you ever um, had a conversation, maybe it was over the phone, penned an email, perhaps to a pastor, to discuss gently and biblically as possible that you believe that he's making salvation too easy, he's assuring people too soon, he's teaching people to rely upon a prayer, and he's not warning them that true salvation is not just merely a prayer that we say or a confession that we make, uh, but it's receiving a heart of flesh 
receiving God's spirit and leading us into a kind of fruitful obedience under his lordship. You know, only to find out that the email then was, before responded to, was sent around to the rest of the staff, and then another staff member responded to you, and you're like, wait a minute, I didn't even write to you. Um, And then to hear things like, uh, this is why we don't let college kids help in ministry before vetting them, right? Um, Have you ever had... uh, Have you ever posted something on Facebook to encourage conversation, to call out sin, only to find hatred and division in return, to find that sides have clearly been mapped out, adversaries chosen, going after a guy you were convinced is leading others astray, which I'm still convinced he was, post after post refuting arguments, slaying, logically speaking, everyone involved in the process, watching friends follow after this guy, and be led astray into heinous sin, unbiblical theology based on emotion alone, and broken trust in relationships all around. Have you ever had a conversation with someone face-to-face uh, where you brought up the law of God, something in God's law, and you're, you're, you're saying, look, we are fallen and broken under God's law, only to have this person turn to your face and kind of accuse you of being demon-possessed? <laughs> um, that's a good conversation starter, by the way. Um, and then you, you, you come to find out, you know, you're talking back and you know, forth, and all you're saying is, is that we rightly deserve God's justice, and that's what will lead us to submit to God's grace. Um, have you ever had any kind of conversations where it cut off relationships, right? All three of these conversations happened in their various mediums and ultimately led to cutting off a relationship. The Facebook and the email one did it faster, the conversation also led to a cutting off of the relationship. Why is that? Well, let's put another analogy. Have you ever talked to someone you deeply know and deeply love, like you've known them a long time, you've been friends a long time, or perhaps you're married to this person, and you have a similar off-putting conversation or disagreement? Uh, Let me give an example. In our darkest moments, among some of our darkest moments of my marriage, I've yelled and called my wife names, first grade style names, just name-calling. That's what the argument resulted into. I will not tell you if she returned in favor, but I'll let you guess. Um, But you know what? We didn't cut off. We didn't leave. We didn't separate. We didn't cut off the relationship. Ultimately, after God's grace kind of laid and sunk into our hearts, we came together. We apologized. We confessed our sins to one another. We extended forgiveness, and we strived to strengthen our marriage further. So why is it that some relationships don't get cut off and others do? Um, Ultimately, um, you know, what I'm asking is why did this happen as opposed to the other three examples I gave? Uh, For one, God is extremely gracious. It's always God's grace when good things happen. Uh, For two, you know, it was face-to-face. That's important, too. Finally, more importantly, my wife loves me, and I love my wife with a fierce love, right? A love that's been spurned by others and has been celebrated by others. A love that has experienced death with one another and suffering. A love that has experienced rejoicing and and not suffering, right? Uh, Blessing. Um, And this fierce love is what allowed us to, quote-unquote, not separate. Uh, This is what I'm going to call a genuine relationship by God's grace, And this is not a love meant just for marriage. It's not a love meant 
just for singleness. It's not a love meant just for friendship. It's not a love just meant for our relationship with Jesus. It's also a love that's especially meant for the church. It's a, it's a love um, for, that's commanded of us for the church, both universal and local. 2 Corinthians 5.21 is the, the great exchange in the gospel. It says this, for our, and you know, fill an hour with Christians, right? For our sake he made him, Jesus, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Paul is partnering with Christ to appeal to the Corinthians by the character of his ministry um, to come back, right, to listen. And what, what do we mean by character of his ministry? He lists off afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, hunger, purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, the Holy Spirit, genuine love by truthful speech, power of God, through honor, dishonor, slander, praise, Treated as it is an, is an imposter, though he's being truthful, dying yet living, punished yet not killed, sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich, and so on and so on, the list goes. And for a good um, understanding of that list, go to last week's sermon. David preached on the character of Paul's ministry, which I'm going to summarize like this. This is a fierce love that Paul has for the Corinthians. And notice our, our passage here. It says this. Uh, in, in, well, first, chapter 6, verse 1, it says, Paul is working together with him. He's working together with Jesus as a result of the 2 Corinthians 5.21. His fierce love is because Christ has loved him. And now he's taken Christ's love, and he's now extending it out to the Corinthians and inviting them in that. And here, the Corinthians are literally contemplating breaking off the relationship. That's what's going on in the, the Second Corinthians later. They're thinking about saying, I'm going to follow the super apostles, air quotes, because that's what Paul calls them, and then instead of Paul. So they're thinking about breaking off the relationship and thus Christ, whom Jesus, or through, whom Paul represents. So why do I bring, bring this up? If we look around in our own lives, I'm convinced, at least this happens to me all the time, this is something that I see going on in my own life. The past 15 years, I can count relationships that have been broken off. Whether it's my fault or it's the fault of the other person, it doesn't matter. The relationships that have been broken because of my own kind of sinfulness and then also their sinfulness. Uh, more importantly, I bring it up because it's rooted in this text. Our text today is couched uh, between an appeal. All right? So it's a call to holiness couched in between an appeal. And what is his appeal? Verse 11, Paul says his heart is wide open. I think what he means there is, I'm willing to endure all those things I just listed off, the characteristics of my ministry. I'm willing to endure all that for you, right? My heart's wide open to you. And then a little bit later in verse um, 13, he says, in return, I speak to as, as to children, widen your hearts also. So he's calling them to do the same. I've done this for you, return the favor, right? So at the beginning, we've got this call to a wide open heart. Look at chapter 7, verse 2. At the end, he returns to this call. Make room in your hearts for us. And so the way I would say is this. Reconciliation takes two to tango. It takes two Christians who have their hearts wide open to each other, rooted in the fierce love and reconciliation that Christ has himself extended 
to us. Two people who are willing to suffer the worst things on behalf of each other, even at the hands of each other. That's important. Um, because the Corinthians have caused Paul suffering. Uh, so even at the hands of each other. So here's the question for us that before we get into this call to holiness. And I'm not going to answer this question. This is for each one of us to answer for ourselves. Is your heart wide open to each other? I'm talking to each individual. Is your individual heart wide open to everyone who claims the name of Christ? Confesses Jesus as Lord. Do you love with a wide open heart, remedy church members with a fierce love? Are you like Paul in this relationship, trying to extend Christ's reconciliation to each other? Or do we find ourselves more times like the Corinthians, where we're on the teetering edge of breaking the relationship, right? And so Paul's call to holiness is couched in between his call for a wide heart. And when we start fighting each other's sin, and we start calling each other to account to walk in holiness— if we don't have a wide heart, we'll walk away from each other. I think that's Paul's point here. So our text at hand can be broken into three very short parts. Um, the imperative or command of holiness, the promises of holiness, and then the completion of holiness. And then in the midst of this, I'm going to go on to excursuses. That's the proper word, excursi. Um, this just means slightly semi-rabbit trails, Okay. Now, they're, they're tied to the text, and you'll see that. I'm not going to go on a rabbit trail outside of the Bible, but um, I, that's the thing. So we're going to do this three points, and in between the three points, we'll have two excursuses. So our first one is this, the imperative of holiness. And it, it finds its root in verse 14. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. And this is verses 14 through the first part of 16. So our text begins with the imperative that's just uh, the mood in the Greek for command. It's not, a, it's not a suggestion, it's a demand. It's a command. All right, so he says, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. And so again, it's, it's couched in between this call for a widened heart. It's surrounded by love, but he then says, you must not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. He's then going to rail off five rhetorical questions that qualify this statement that in our heads, when we hear them, we should be answering the word none every time. None. Do not be unequally yoked to unbelievers. So we need to know two things before we move to the five questions. Do not unequally yoke believers. There's two things we need to look at. First, the phrase unequally yoked. It draws upon rich Old Testament imagery. Leviticus 19.19 19 says this, You shall not let your cattle breed with a different kind. Commentator David Garland points out that in the Septuagint, that's the Greek Old, or sorry, the Greek Old Testament, they translate it into Greek. Leviticus 19.19 19 uses the adjectival form of the word unequally yoked that Paul uses here. So he's, when prohibiting, mating two different species of animals. All right? Numbers 25.3 says this, So Israel yoked himself to Baal of Peor, and the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. So followers of Yahweh here have yoked themselves to false gods along with following Yahweh. Uh, Deuteronomy 22.10 says this, you shall not plow with an ox and a donkey together, right? So it draws up this rich imagery of this really beasty, awesome, you know, ox, which is pulling all the weight. And then you got this little donkey who's 
probably not, you know, I'm, I'm imagining them going kind of like in a, a circle. So it kind of looks like a crop circle at the end because one's stronger than the other. Um, maybe an animal farm joke in there somewhere. So don't be unequally yoked. So here we have sexuality, idolatry, and some form or fashion of labor kind of tied to this idea from the Old Testament. So second, let's look at this word, unbelievers. Now, historically, the text has been interpreted as unbelievers, and not always, but sometimes. Unbelievers has been Christians who are walking in sin without repentance, have been called on it, and then they don't repent, and then um, they're to be treated like unbelievers. And so some people have interpreted this text to say that. However, that doesn't seem right because the term unbeliever, when it's used by Paul, it constantly refers to those who are outside Jesus or outside the church. And I'll list off some. You don't have to write this down. But 1 Corinthians 6, 6, chapter 7, 12, 13, 14, and 15, 10, 27, 14, 22, 23, and 24, and 2 Corinthians 4, 4. Every time he uses it in the Corinthian letters, it always means an outsider to Christ, someone who does not believe, literally unbeliever, does not believe in Christ. Uh, commentator Paul Barnett reminds us that most of 1 Corinthians dealt with this subject of the church separating from the world. So he, he's going to run through Corinthians a little bit, 1 Corinthians. Holiness to those whose former lifestyle has been unholy, 6, 9 through 11. Bodily separation from sexual immorality, this is chapter 6, 16 through 20. Consecration of the unbelieving spouse and children through the believer as a spouse or parent, this is chapter 7, 14. Necessary separation from the national cults or the Gentile cults. And this is chapter 10, 14 through 22. So these subjects have been covered by Paul pretty heavily in his first letter to the Corinthians. And here again, he's, he's turning again to this, this subject. So the Corinthians have joined many things, and they now must forsake those things that they've joined or forsake Paul. It's one or the other. So here's the five rhetorical questions, and this is going to serve to kind of give quality to what, what, is, what do you mean unequally yoked? What is he talking about there? Like, are we talking about like working alongside, having an unbeliever in our house? What, what are we talking about here? He's going to get five rhetorical questions to kind of qualify it. And we're going to take them a few at a time. The first two are, for what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? None. Or what fellowship has light with darkness? None. These point to the nature of believers versus the nature of unbelievers. Okay, so these are, nat like they're, these are uh, nature qualifications when it comes to uh, his command. Believers have a righteousness given to them from Jesus, and they're actually beginning to live out that righteousness by the power of the Holy Spirit, right? We call that sanctification, being made more like Christ. Um, but unbelievers are characterized by lawlessness. Now, what do we mean by that? Is it crazy? Is it always crazy? Like, are they all, like, every unbeliever is a murderer? No, that's not what we mean by that. What we mean by lawlessness is they disobey God's laws. They disregard God's words. And even oftentimes, we find that they disobey their own laws, their own morality that they hold other people to. Also importantly, and most importantly, they do not turn in repentance to Christ for forgiveness of disobedience. And so even though the believer disobeys God's laws, he knows when he's called out on disobeying God's laws, he turns to Christ. An unbeliever does not. Uh, so uh, what about light and darkness? Well, this is a reference back to 2 Corinthians 4.6. For God who said, 
let light shine out of the darkness, has shone into our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And so we, Christians like Paul, we're not supposed to proclaim ourselves. We're supposed to proclaim Jesus Christ. However, unbelievers live in darkness as a result of being blinded by the God of this world. And so they, even though the light is coming out through the message of Jesus, they don't see it. They only see darkness unless God changes their nature, right? So um, let's look at this second set of two questions. What accord has Christ with Belial, or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? This is more about a contradiction between kings and other kings and kingdoms and other kingdoms. And so there's, there's a difference of, like, what kingdom do you belong? Whose allegiance do you give? Like, who is your king? Um, is kind of the thing being brought up here. So Christ is the king of one kingdom, and Belial is the king of another. You might be like, Belial, what is that? Uh, Belial is a word used in the intertestamental times. So between the Old Testament and the writing of the New Testament, the Jewish rabbis and Jewish scholars during that time used the word Belial often. Now, the word literally means worthlessness, but it became a proper name for Satan, the, the accuser. Okay, so when he says Belial here, he intends Satan. So what, why is Paul using such a Jewish name here? Well, probably because it's not just Gentiles in the church. It's also Jews. And so he's also using culture that they properly belong to as well to kind of uh, get across. The other thing he's doing here is he's making a, a, a joke, a, a, a yoke joke. I kid you not. Um, a pun. He, the, the, the Hebrew phrase, Belial, means having no yoke. And it sounds a lot like Belial, which is this name for Satan. And so think about it this way. Jesus, uh, one of our favorite passages, right? Come to me, all you who are weary, right? Take my yoke upon you. Now, when a rabbi offered his yoke, what that oftentimes meant is he's saying, take the Torah upon you and follow after me, right? Take the law upon you and follow after me. And yet Jesus then goes, this, it's, he makes it sound so easy, right? It's going to be nice. It's going to be restful. Well, think about it. Put the law on your back and ask yourself the question, is that going to be restful? No, it's not, unless you're following Jesus, right? Because he provides all the shortcomings that you make in the law. He gives to you from himself, right? Righteousness. He gives you his righteousness, and he takes on your... your so anyways, Jesus offers this yoke, right? You put the law on and follow after Christ. But then over here, Bilal, you also put his yoke on, which is no yoke. That's kind of the joke that he's making. You can't put on a yoke and no yoke and then say that you're, you're following after Jesus. That's, that's his, his joke. All right, so this next thing, this inheritance, right? What portion seems to hint at this idea of inheritance? We're going to inherit something. When you follow Christ, we're going to inherit the kingdom of God. We're going to inherit righteousness. We're going to inherit all these blessings, the ble every spiritual blessing in every, like, all these spiritual places, right? The Ephesians 1, read that whole chapter. And so, Christians are going to inherit this kind of inheritance. Unbelievers are going to inherit something else. You can't have both. You can't inherit both. And that's kind of his point. And so, his final question, it starts to lead us from the, the demand or command of holiness toward promises, he says this, what agreement 
has the temple of God with idols? Again, none. And uh, by the way, we are individually God's temples, according to 1 Corinthians 6, 19 through 20. And then collectively as a local body, and then also church universal, we're also considered God's temple, 1 Corinthians 3, 16 through 17. So both individual and communal levels apply in that analogy. And so this draws up this rich and also as we go into 1 Kings, 2 Kings, despicable imagery, right? And we just went through 1 and 2 Kings, and so we should have a pretty familiarity with this. Solomon builds this temple. It's glorious. Yahweh fills it with his glory. There's prayers said. Everything is wonderful. And then second half of Solomon's reign, it all goes downhill. And then king after king after king. What we find is oftentimes these kings would build idols to other gods and put them in the temple. And then Paul's question is like, what does God's temple have to do with that? Nothing, right? And so he's bringing up that rich imagery from First and Second Kings. And so here, John MacArthur, and this is a, this is a helpful, it's a lengthy but helpful quote. Um, he says it this way, the false teachers, that's the super apostles, were eager to blend people, the people of God, the Corinthians, with the pagan worshipers, the, the Gentile cults, all right? So he, they're, they're wanting to blend. They're wanting to synchronize, whatever you want to call it, right? And so uh, because this hinders the gospel. So then he says this. To infiltrate churches under the guise of tolerance and cooperation is one of Satan's most cunning ploys. He doesn't want to fight the church as much as join it. When he comes against the church, it grows stronger oftentimes. When he joins the church, it grows weaker Undiscerning believers who join in a common spiritual cause with unbiblical forms of Christianity or other false religions open the door wide to satanic infiltration and forfeit the blessing of God. End quote. So that's a pretty strong warning. And so here's how, it, here, here's how he's kind of saying, be careful, right? Be careful what you join. Be careful what you join. Because whatever we join ourselves to, we inevitably bring to the church. And we join the church too. Be careful what you join. So let me be crystal clear here. We're, we're, we are currently in a culture, and this has been the last 10 years of my life. We're currently in a culture, so that's what I mean by current 10 years. Currently in a culture that beckons us to join, to speak quickly, to hashtag, to fund, to participate, to do this, to do that. And so simply put, none of those things are wrong in themselves. Don't rush into any particular partnership before thinking about it, before praying about it, before taking some time to consider it, before asking one another about it, before looking to like your pastors, like ask your pastors about it. Take your time. We don't have to rush into things. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. And so to disobey Paul's command here is to forsake any hope for the holiness that God calls us to, to have as his people. And so, real quick, first excursus, that's our first rabbit trail. I mentioned historically this text is interpreted, uh, Paul talking about unrepentant believers, and I just wanted to make sure that, you know, he's not talking about that here, but he does talk about that. First uh, Corinthians 5, 9 through 13 um, talks about that. And so, let me, let me just real quick read that. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Well, that's ambiguous. What do you mean? 
not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world, so not unbelievers, or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. You wouldn't be able to escape it. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders, that's the world, is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside, and that's the end of the text. So, now, let me be careful here. What he's not saying is, oh, separate yourself from Christians who are sinners. We would not be in fellowship with one another if we did that. Uh, I don't, I mean, at least I wouldn't, I'm probably, you know, I've sin a lot. Um, sin a lot. So he's not talking about that. He's talking about Christians who openly sin are then called on their sin by another Christian, and then they say, no, I'm not going to repent of this. I'm going to keep doing this. And then, you know, maybe some more Christians come and do it, and then maybe eventually. So let me read this. Uh, Jesus says it this way in Matthew 18, 15 through 17, which is likely what Paul has in mind. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen to you, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to even listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to even listen to the church, let him be as to you a Gentile and a tax collector, which is Jesus' way of saying, you're to treat that person as if they're not really following me. Because... Right now, there's no evidence that demonstrates they are. It's not saying necessarily that they are unbelievers. It's just saying, treat them that way. Note the key phrase here. If he refuses, if he refuses to listen, even to the church. So we're not talking about sin. We're talking about sin that's confronted by multiple witnesses in multiple steps that's ultimately brought eventually before the whole church. And each step there is a refusal to listen, a refusal to repent, a refusal to change their mind and admit and confess, yes, this was sin and I was wrong. So we're not talking about something else. So let me put it this way. Remedies bylaws says it this way in Article (laughs) 3.3, member discipline. Remedy will practice church discipline in accordance with the instructions of the Bible under the leadership of the Council of Elders. That's Matthew, and then it puts in parenthetical Matthew 18. A member of the church may be removed for valid cause by the council of elders upon the approval of the membership. That's Matthew 18, right? So if it, God forbid, gets to the step where you have to put it before the church, the church then calls the person to repent, and if they don't even listen to the church, there's a removal. Now, what are we talking about removal here? This is just from participating in the Lord's Supper. It's from doing something visible that says, I'm a member of this body. I am truly submitting to the Lordship of Jesus. We're not saying, oh, can't come to church no more. <laughs> um, we want every unbeliever in Rock Hill to sit in fellowship, church fellowship all around Rock Hill who preach the gospel. We want every unbeliever to sit through community groups and hear people talk about the gospel and hear people talk about loving one another and submitting to one another and confessing their sins to one another. Um, so it's just talking about removal. So that, that's what Paul has in mind in 1 Corinthians um, 5. And, but not this text. So that's the end of the excursus. So back to this. 
Number two, the promises of holiness. For we are the temple of the living God, as God said. And this is going to come from verses 16, second half of 16, to verses 18. The text starts, continues, I should say, with a beautiful indicative. Indicative is just a statement of reality. For we are the temple of the living God. He's then going to unleash several Old Testament passages threaded together to qualify what he means by we are the temple of God. And um, before we analyze his use of the Old Testament, I just want you to not skip the word for, F-O-R. It's a very small word. Do not skip this word. So I'm going to say, as Spurgeon once said of another word in Scripture, there is an ocean of meaning in a drop of language here. An ocean of meaning in a drop of language. For is used twice in our text. The first use of the word for is used to initiate the five rhetorical questions that we just went through to qualify his command. The second use of the word for, which closes off a section, it concludes it, right? The second use of the word for in the second half of the verse uh, 16 hashes out the foundation upon which Paul builds his command to holiness in the first place. For we are the living, the temple of the living God. Why should we not be unequally yoked? Not so that we earn a right to be loved by God, to have God dwelling in us, but because he actually, we are his temple. It's not so that we can be his temple. We already are his temple. Why should we not be unequally yoked? For we are the temple of the living God. Be holy because the holy God who reconciled you by the blood of Jesus is holy. And he lives inside of you and you are his temple. He declares that about you. The imperative of Christianity, the commands of Christianity, are always built upon the indicatives of Christianity, the statements. The laws of Christianity are always built upon the promises already given to us in Christ. The holiness of God, the holiness that he demands, is built upon the righteousness that Christ has already supplied. So don't skip this blessed use of the word for. We could really probably just preach a whole sermon on this, but I'm not going to. So it really carries with it an ocean of meaning and a drop of language. If we get this four backwards, all of Christianity falls apart. If we get this four backwards, all of our relationships fall apart. They become lawful instead of graceful. So it's important. Don't skip the four. Um, Christ took our sin so that we could take his righteousness. And that's, the, that's where we start. So Paul is going to then quote Old Testament scripture, and, and notice in chapter 7, verse 1, he refers back to the Old Testament scripture as these promises. And so what he's doing right now is he's putting in front of people promises. He's saying these are promises. And so uh, we're going to look at verse 16 scripture, we're going to look at 17 and 18. That's how we'll break it down. So verse 16 says this, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them. I will be their God and they shall be my people. So he's going to quote multiple things here. First, Leviticus 26, 11 through 12, Jeremiah 24, 7, and likely also Ezekiel 37, 27. So looking at this Leviticus passage, he's not just, uh, Leviticus says this, I will make my dwelling among you. My soul shall not abhor you. 
I will walk among you and will be your God, and you shall be my people. And so even though he's grabbing two verses from Leviticus, he's actually got the whole context in mind. So let me give you uh, what G.K. Beale and D.A. Carson kind of note about Leviticus 26, its whole context. So right after the part we just quoted, verse 13 reminds the Israelites that God brought them out of Egypt. Verses 14 through 39 is a long section warning against disobedience to God's commands with the punishments that go along with those. Verses 40 through 45 finish up by renewing the promises for those who confess their sins and come back to God. And then finally, verse 46 uh, tells us that uh, it's all about God's covenant to God's people, the people of Israel. Uh, The Jeremiah passage says this, I will give them a heart to know that I am the Lord, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God, for they shall return to me with their whole heart. And then the Ezekiel passage, which is the famous valley of dry bones, says it this way in verse 27, my dwelling place shall be with them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Now Paul Paul says that these are promises, and uh, just a little dive into 37. If you have not read Ezekiel 37, read the whole chapter at some point in time today or tomorrow. It's amazing. But basically, I'll I'll give you the Cliff Notes uh, version. Valley of dry bones. The bones start rattling together. Muscle and flesh is provided and covers the bones, and then a breath of life comes in, and then there's a full army just standing, living. And it all happened because Ezekiel is speaking the words that God commanded him to speak. Now, at the end of it, at the end, uh, in, you know, it talks about that there's going to be this king, David. He's going to be king over this living army that just was regenerated, so to speak. Uh, David's been dead for hundreds upon hundreds of years. Uh, so Ezekiel's talking about Jesus, the son of David, um, the, the Messiah. Uh, so David here is Jesus Christ. And um, so go read Ezekiel 37. It's amazing. So Paul refers to that, and that's promises that are... He's giving it to the Corinthians. It's not just for the the Old Testament Jews. He's giving it to the Corinthians. Uh, Verse 17, he's going to quote some more. Therefore go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. So here he's going to quote from Isaiah 52 and Ezekiel 20. Isaiah 52, 11 says this, Depart, depart, go out from there. Touch no unclean thing. Go out from the midst of her, Babylon, Purify yourselves, you who bear the vessels of the Lord. And so uh, Isaiah is beckoning his people as they come out of Babylon and they're carrying the, the, the vessels that go into the temple of God. They're literally carrying it out of Babylon and they're going back to the promised land to essentially reestablish God's temple. Uh, that's kind of the context of the Isaiah 52 uh, passage. And so again, G.K. Beale, uh, well, let me read Ezekiel 20, 34 as well. I will bring you out from the peoples and gather you out of the countries where you are scattered with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm and with wrath poured out. Um, So again, G.K. Beale and Carson summarize the context here. It's about coming out of Egypt. It's about disobedience to God in the wilderness. Um, It's about disobedience during the time of the prophets. And then it's a call to not be like the nations around us. And then it's a call to separate from the rebels among us. And that's the context of the Ezekiel and the Isaiah passage. So verse 18, he's going to quote some more. 
It's just a big string of Old Testament passages. And I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. So here he's going to quote from 2 Samuel 7 and Isaiah 43. 2 Samuel 7, verse 8, uses the phrase Lord Almighty, which is literally in Hebrew, it's Yahweh of hosts, all right? The, the, the Lord of armies. Um, and then 2 Samuel 7, 14 is the famous passage that we, we all likely have heard. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. Talking about David's son, right? And then there's the promise that there, David will never lack a man to sit on the throne, right? And eventually we get it that the prophets later on take that, and then the New Testament later takes that and says, Christ is the son of David. So again, it's a reference to Christ being the fulfillment of these promises. But notice here, he doesn't, uh, he switches a word um, in the text. He doesn't say, like, Jesus is the, the David, right, the son of God. He actually points to the Corinthians and says, you are. And so uh, this is just, again, indicating back to what the great exchange, 2 Corinthians 5.21. Christ has literally given us his identity, and he's taken ours upon himself. He's taken our sinfulness upon himself, and he's given his status before God to us. So we can rightly call each other sons and daughters of the Most High God. And notice he uses the word daughters, which is not in 2 Samuel 7. Now, he's not making a point to say, like, oh, that was a gender specific, and now I'm adding a gender to it. Uh, in, in a lot of languages around the world, when you're talking about a group of people that are men and women, you use a masculine form to just capture the whole group. So when, when, when he's applying sons, like elsewhere in the Bible, and the ESV makes a little subnote that says, this also includes women, that's why, because it, it does. Uh, but why does he add the word daughters then? Well, because there's passages throughout the Old Testament that also uses that phrase, sons and daughters. So Isaiah 43, 6 says this, Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the end of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made, bring out the people who are blind yet have eyes, who are deaf yet have ears. So all these, all these passages just affirm his statement. For you are the temple of the living God. These are the promises of holiness given to us all around in the, the Old Testament, ultimately extended and, and approved and given their yes and amen in Jesus Christ. And so I want to go to our second excursus. And this is, this is way more textually grounded. It's not, a, it's not a rabbit trail in any sense of the word. Um, in this text, maybe you didn't see it, but if you go back to verses 16 through 18, um, you'll see something wonderful that I didn't see until I read it like a million times. I didn't read it a million times, five times maybe. Uh, before Paul quotes from Leviticus 6, 26 and Jeremiah 24 and verse 16, he says this, as God said. He didn't say, as Moses, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel said. He said, as God said. Uh, he, he doesn't really mean that, Chris. He's not trying to make that point in this text. Well, look at verse 17. Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord. He quotes Isaiah and Ezekiel, and again, he says, says the Lord. Ah, he's not making that point. Two times, uh, that's a fluke. Let's go to verse 18. And I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. 
He quotes from 2 Samuel 7, 14, goes all the way back to verse 8, and drags 8 and puts it at the end. Why did he do that? Well, this is the equivalent of the holy, holy, holy saying in the Bible, but of God's word. So the angels are saying holy, holy, holy to God, and Paul here is saying the equivalent here of Scripture. All right, so when you read any phrase in Scripture, you should chant like the angels. God says, Yahweh says, Yahweh of hosts says. Each time it gets more implicit and, not implicit, it gets more extravagant. It's, oh, it's God. Oh, no, it's God by his personal covenantal name, Yahweh. Oh, no, it's that God who has all power because he's the Lord of hosts. So there's a really lot of bad theology floating around in our culture uh, concerning the Bible. And so um, in the spirit of John Bunyan, I'm going to do some allegorical, uh, allegoricalizing of my head, um, things that go through my head when I read the Bible. Literally me. This is, all, this is an introspection of my head. Maybe you can relate. So first up, we have Mr. Beach House. This is one of the voices. I don't have split personality. I'm not saying that. But it's thoughts that I'm tempted to give into, and sometimes I do give into. Uh, John, Paul, John Bunyan called him talkative. All right? He's a master of studying and understanding the Bible. He understands it in its context. He knows the author's intent. He can defend it to the teeth. He can refute false teaching. He can explain the Bible wonderfully well to others. He can articulately outline such beautiful teachings such as the doctrines of grace. He believes that he is headed to heaven, but there's only one problem. He doesn't obey the word or do the word at any level, barely at all, if at, at all. I hear his voice oftentimes the loudest. There is a way in which we can study scripture and understand scripture and disobey scripture all at the same time. And that's important to know about your own heart. Um, it's important to know. That's why we need each other. Second, uh, Dr. Marcion. Marcion, why Marcion is an old ancient church heresy, sorry. Uh, Marcion carries around the same pair of scissors, all right, uh, that many people do, like myself. Depending on how he's feeling or what last human tradition he studied, or rather what podcast he was listening to, he's able to snip, snip, snip away parts of the Bible that no longer apply. Uh, when, when he walks in nature, he is prone to snip away everything supernatural in the Bible. Uh, when he, uh, when he um, looks at he puts through on his glasses or his, his other Bible, reason and logic. He's snipping away all the things that just seem weird or grammatically incorrect or historical accounts that couldn't have, couldn't have possibly happened. And he snips those things. There's clearly error all the way throughout it, and he snips it. And the Bible, if you give in to this voice, the Bible gets a lot easier to read the longer I let him do his work. It gets a lot easier to read. And honestly, Jesus' lordship becomes a lot easier to bear with for some reason, perhaps because, you know, we're cutting away the Bible. Third, and this is my head, by the way, Miss, Mrs. Judge Words. Like Mr. Beach House, she has a very strong presence in my mind, not because she's loud, but because she is just so just, reasonable, and she knows her way around laws and words very well, especially modern words. I'm listening to her nodding my head point for point and realize all of a sudden I just agreed to some serious sin, like lust or pornography, or fornication, or homosexuality, or maybe it's just something a little bit more respectable, but just as dangerous, like 
gossip or slander. She's replaced an ancient old interpretation with a more civil, updated, and new one. You're not slandering. You're just processing with your wife about other church people. You're not gossiping. You're just sharing prayer requests or however it is, right? We have respectful sins and we have the ones that we're like, oh, if that person does that, they can't be a Christian. Um, But uh, when we let misjudge words uh, have at it, she just merely changes words with a new meaning. Finally, and this is the last one, uh, Lady Hollywood. Now, her name is spelled Holy Word, but she's quick to inform you that it's pronounced Hollywood. Okay, so you got to know that about her. So I sit at her feet, and she just blatantly says stupid things that are so obviously unbiblical, but she says them so entertainingly, so entertainingly. I love hearing her and just watching what she watches. I disagree with upwards of 60% of what she says and does, but I sit silently at her feet, not willing to voice my disagreement for fear of interrupting the good show that's going on. She says blatantly stupid things. Did I already say that? Um, She says blatantly stupid things so often uh, that sometimes I look up when reading the Bible and wonder why it hurts me to read it, why the Bible seems backwards to me. Her culture absorbs my thinking and often makes me think the most straightforward, obvious understanding of Scripture is backwards, old-fashioned, or maybe a better word, Stone Age, right? These are all the kind of just different ideologies that flow around in my brain when I w- and my temptations when I read scripture that I give in too often. Um, and maybe you're like me. But what does Jesus say about scripture? Matthew 5, 17 through 18. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota or a dot will pass away from the law until all is accomplished. Not even the smallest strokes of the Hebrew alphabet will pass away from the law until it's all accomplished. Jesus quoted scripture to rebuke Satan when he was under temptation three times. Uh, He read from Isaiah scrolls, and then he sat down, which is when the, the rabbi would then give the sermon on the Isaiah scrolls, and then he just merely said, this has been fulfilled in your hearing, because he himself is the sermon Uh, Jesus taught the Emmaus disciples all the things in Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms that concerned him. Jesus spoke with precision about marriage and sexuality and divorce by standing firm upon Genesis 2.24, which he quotes in Matthew 15, and he recited scripture even in the midst of his anguish upon the cross, Psalm 22. He spoke of Adam, Eve, Cain, Abel, Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Jonah, Elisha, Elijah, Moses, Daniel, David, Solomon, and Isaiah as if they really were real flesh and blood human beings that lived in real history. If we doubt, well, let me just quote. This is Barry Cooper. Um, there's a little pamphlet if you're interested. It's, it's very easy read. It's a little pamphlet that just says, can I really trust the Bible? Now, if you're looking for a scholarly work, this is a pamphlet, so don't, don't read this. <laughs> Uh, but if you just want looking for, hey, I want to read something that's really quick and um, get kind of, he'll point to you to other resources. He says, uh, can I really trust the Bible? If we doubt the authority of the Old Testament, or we'd rather cut out some of the things we read in it, all this puts us in a very difficult position. To say that we cannot really trust, is, it is uh, to claim at a distance of a few thousand years that we, or likely scholars we've put trust in, 
can see straighter than the Jewish religious authorities, the Jewish people at the time of Jesus, the writers of the New Testament who are filled with the Holy Spirit, and Jesus Christ himself. Remember, church, when we read the Bible, say with Paul, God says, the Lord says, the Lord Almighty says. Point three, the completion of holiness. And this is a conclusion. Um, Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves. This comes from chapter 7, verse 1. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. Uh, Commentator Paul Barnett says this, and he's just reminding us, the imperative rests on the indicative, the ought upon the is. Since we have these beautiful promises, or as John nicknamed Golden Mouth Chrysostrum all the way back in the 4th century, when talking about this very passage, said this, what promises? That we are the temple of God, the sons and daughters, have God indwelling and walking in us. We are his people. We have him for our God and our Father. Since we have these beautiful promises, remedy, beloved of God. He called him beloved. Notice he called the Corinthians beloved. When you follow Christ and you gather together, knit together, you're beloved. You're, you're the beloved of God. All right? So we have these beautiful promises remedy. Let us also cleanse ourselves from every defilement, false partnership. That's of the body or in our spirit. Thus bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. Fear of God, for he has the power to both destroy the body and the soul. It's a real fear. It's not just merely respect, although it's, it's, it's beyond just being afraid. Fear God because it leads to wisdom. Fear God because he is wonderfully working in us and working out and, and working in us to work out our salvation, as Philippians 2 says. Fear God because he is the Lord of hosts. He's almighty. He's the creator. He's the sustainer of all that is. He's the one that on the cross of Christ, at the very same time as being crucified in Christ, he's holding up the very cross by the word of his power. The fear of God. Dwell on the promises, opening your heart to God, to Christ, to Scripture, to Paul, to each other, and pursue the holiness that he demands in it. The pursuit of holiness requires soaking up these promises, uh, echoing what 2 Corinthians 1.20 says, for all the promises of God find their yes in him, Jesus. That is why it is through Jesus that we utter our amen to God for his glory. Also, we need to pursue the holiness. It, it requires soaking in the promises. It requires us opening our hearts widely to each other in the midst of disagreement, killing sin, uh, rejoicing and unity, um, repentance and forgiveness. All these things happen among us only when we pursue the promises of God with open hearts toward one another. So the question be, be, might be, how wide, you say? How wide should I open my heart to my fellow Remedy Church member? This wide. This wide. Christ on the cross did it for you. So imagine right now, this is the analogy. Christ is nailed on the cross. 
right? And you're on one side and a fellow believer or maybe an enemy, depending on how you're looking at him during the time, is on the other side. You latch onto his right hand and, you la- and this person latches onto his left hand. And in the power of his resurrection, he brings his hands with your hands together. We need the crucifixion and resurrection of Christ to produce the unity that we desire. Our hearts must be wide. And we can only find the power to do that on the old, rugged, awful tree. So you should open your, your heart as wide. And then when we don't, because guess what? We don't. I don't. There's times in which I don't. <laughs> um, my children, my wife, my friends, there's just times when I don't. Um, maybe even more times. Repent. Come back to Christ. And when you're hurt by someone, which is also likely to happen, because guess what? When you love people, when you wide open your heart to people, it gives them like the, the best place to just put a dagger, right? True friends stab in the front. Remember that. Um, so it puts it, so when you're hurt by people, it's the same thing. Come back to Christ and see his heart opened wide on the cross for you. Rest there. Find forgiveness there. Find restoration there. And then open your heart in return to the people that hurt you. Let's pray. Father, um, man, sinfulness, it it divides us. um, And righteousness divides us at times as well. And um, left to our own devices, we bring utter destruction to the ones we love dearest, the ones we don't love at all, and ourselves. And uh, the law, (laughs) to love you and to love uh, our neighbor, um, it's a crushing weight. It's a crushing weight. We fall short. I ask that when we take your yoke upon us, that we do it in the Lordship of Christ. Jesus, will you come help us? Will you come... Restore us when we're broken. Restore us when we're hurt. Restore us when we hurt people. And uh, allow us to see the cross as the power of God, not only for salvation, uh, but for reconciliation to one another and to those who don't have Christ. Glorify yourself, Lord, in your word. Allow us to be hearers and doers. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.